Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from India, Hungary, Colombia, the United States, and a see you in hell from the international world of the Vatican and another one from both Argentina and Germany. Going to start out with India. This is just a little quick note. The Indian Ministry of Culture is currently engaging in a series of DNA tests of Indian citizens and residents to determine the pure bloodlines or the like potentially pure Indian bloodlines of some of its residents. Now, the obvious racist uh, and uh, ethnicist nature of this is pretty apparent. But it is also an important part of the right wing in India's claim that Muslims and other people who do not practice Hinduism in India are invaders or are more recent and therefore like less legitimate inhabitants of India. You know, their claim is that they arrived too late. And so this testing of people's bloodlines is an attempt to establish, you know, legitimacy of remaining in India. It's very disgusting. It's something we got to keep a keep a close eye on. Moving on to Hungary, the first CPAC, that's the Conservative Political Action Committee, the leading event in conservatism in the United States, was held um, outside of the United States for the first time. This is the first time it's been held outside of the United States, and it was held in Budapest, Hungary, presided over by Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary and leading figure on the international right wing. It's a showcase of the close relationship and development of a much closer relationship and admiration between Hungary and the right wing in the United States. Uh, they share great replacement ideology, you know, the idea that white people are being replaced by immigrants who are outbreeding white people. I mean, like, that's literally the language that these people use. It's, it's terrible, dehumanizing. Uh, they're also both anti-queer. Uh, they have a skepticism of democracy and a loyalty to their party opposed to their nation. This is honestly an extremely big coup for Viktor Orban, who is now a major player in the international right wing, uh, rather than just being the prime minister of one of the smaller countries in the European Union. So the fact that he has gotten CPAC to be in Hungary, uh, the fact that he has gotten so many people in the right wing in the United States to, you know, not just notice him, but actually specifically call him out as a leading light on the right wing in the world is it's extremely successful for him. Orban led the meeting by calling out the uh, what he said were the 12 key points in success for Christian conservatives. You know, that's how he was trying to frame the connection between the right wing in the United States and Hungary. He said that there's these like 12 points that are extremely important for all people on the right wing to uh, connect to. Notably, including first that they must play by their own rules, uh, which is a nod to his illiberalism and also to Donald Trump's challenging of normal democratic processes. He also specifically called out the success of enforcing borders and preventing immigration by constructing border fences. Uh, Hungary has also constructed a fence along its southern border, uh, as has the United States under Donald Trump. He also says that the right wing should strive to control the media and promotes the narrative that liberals and leftists control the media, or that like the media is unfairly pro-left in some capacity. Ugh. In any case, the fact that Orban is successfully getting the right wing in the United States to, you know, follow the beat of his drum, and also to see his just like self-aware illiberal politics as an example to follow, it's pretty disturbing.
Moving on to Colombia, we have the results in the first round of the Colombian presidential election. The second round will come in the coming weeks. And there was an upset in this election. Now, this was the first round in the election, so there were a bunch of candidates, but it was expected. In fact, it was predicted by almost every observer that a man named Petro and Gutierrez would be the two top vote-getters and would therefore go on to the next round. Petro is a senator and former guerrilla fighter and a leftist. He's trying to be Colombia's first openly leftist president. Uh, since the 20th century's long struggle of the FARC and other leftist organizations in Colombia. And Gutierrez, who is a sort of more establishment candidate and former mayor of Medellin. Instead, the top conservative right-wing vote-getter was not Gutierrez, but a man named Hernández. And Rodolfo Hernández, this, this, um, this right-wing figure, is not an establishment conservative figure like Gutierrez. He's... Um, He's like an extreme right-wing populist demagogue type. He was the mayor of a city in Colombia, and while mayor, uh, the city saw massive increases in poverty and other major issues and governance changes. In addition to his mayoral time, Hernandez's qualifications for being the president are that he is a major businessman. As a major businessman, his family was targeted for political ransoming and kidnapping, and his response was to just um, to let them kill let them kill the member of his family that they'd kidnapped. He, he said he didn't want to pay the money, and he didn't. Um, Hernandez is also on record as saying that he is, quote, a fan of Adolf Hitler. Uh, he literally, directly plans on establishing a state of emergency if he is elected president. Uh, literally what he's saying here is that, like, if you elect me as the president, I will suspend the rule of law in Colombia, and I will rule by decree. I might stop Congress from meeting. And he is also saying that he might um, prevent local leaders like elected officials, mayors, governors uh, from being able to deny his decrees. Now, that's, that's literally what he says. Like, this isn't hyperbole. This is what his electoral promises are. Uh, predictably, though, conservatives and other more establishment right-wing figures in Colombia are lining up behind him. They're lining up behind Rodolfo Hernández because they do not want Petro, uh, this uh, leftist candidate, to be the president. They say that Hernández is the safe pick, uh, and this is a man, again, who's literally saying, I will try to be the dictator of Colombia if you elect me. Um, this is really disturbing. It's extremely possible that Hernández will win because he has the support of the extremely powerful business elite, in Colombia, and also the relatively more powerful conservative political coalition that has been running that country for quite some time. We're going to have to keep an eye on this, and it's entirely possible that this could go very disturbingly south very quickly. Moving on to the United States, Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, or at least the erstwhile leader of the Proud Boys, has lost his appeal to be able to go out on bail. Uh, he has been under arrest for quite a while, uh, pending charges or pending trial for his involvement in the January 6th attempted coup last year. Uh, the judge has said that he can't leave because of his extremely serious, repeated, successful uh, armed challenges to democracy in the United States. You know, it's pretty good reason, I would say. Uh, this means that Tario will stay in jail pending a big January 6th trial against him. 
Uh, the judges said that there is very strong evidence against him that makes him a risk if let out. Uh, he has many priors related to right-wing activity. Recall, interestingly, that Tario is not charged with actually being present on January 6th. He was uh, actually detained by the police prior to that and was not allowed to participate in the proceedings, like in the actual attempted coup, because of some um, political violence that he engaged in in Washington, D.C., leading up to the coup itself. However, Tario is charged with being the leader of the Proud Boys, one of the organizations that led the actual physical invasion of the Capitol building. And he's specifically charged with being the leader of the part of the Proud Boys that was planning this coup and also cooperating with some of the other right-wing and fascist organizations that engaged in the coup, such as the Oath Keepers, Patriot Front, other people like that. This organization, this subgroup in the Proud Boys is called the Ministry of Defense, and it's an organization that, uh, that's a name that's going to be in the history books, folks. I mean, like the, these are the people who planned the coup. These are the people who tried to prevent Congress from counting electoral votes. So Tardio is still in jail, pending trial. Further on the January 6th unfolding disaster in democracy in the United States, a series of subpoenas are expected in Georgia regarding election interference in that state. This is starting the process of prosecuting people for trying to stop Georgia from counting legitimate votes in the 2020 election. Uh, they're saying that they could contact as many as 50 potential witnesses who refused to cooperate with this special investigation prior to the issuing of subpoenas. The charges in Georgia are pretty interesting, and they go beyond Trump's call to that state's secretary of state, uh, in which Trump actually just like pled for the guy to just rustle up some more votes and get Trump to win the state. Like Trump just called him up and said, hey, can you make me win instead of losing? Um, so this is going beyond that. Uh, the prosecutor is looking into racketeering charges, uh, which is just like major corruption charges, things like that. Charges about other sorts of political shenanigans. Uh, there was also apparently a scheme to submit fake electoral votes from Georgia, which could possibly result in fraud charges against a lot of people in Georgia and also people outside of it. Like this investigation could get really broad and it could be one of the things that would bring down some of Trump's allies or possibly even Trump himself. This is also not the only state where Trump and his allies engaged in this kind of shit after the 2020 election. So it's entirely possible that this could be a template for other states' similar investigations. Finally, in the world of subpoenas, there has been another subpoena issued to a key Trump ally. His name is Peter Navarro. He was a trade advisor for Donald Trump, but was also a close personal ally and sort of a confidant and planner around the January 6th events. Now, he has already been subpoenaed by Congress, by the Special Committee on Investigating the January 6th Attempted Coup, but this is a separate subpoena uh, by the Department of Justice in their own investigation of all of this stuff. Because uh, remember, it's not just Congress doing this, it's also the Department of Justice. This is the first time the DOJ has subpoenaed somebody who was involved in Trump's White House for their involvement in the January 6th coup. This represents uh, their casting a much wider net for the subpoenas than they previously had. And it means that they're looking into more and more and more connections that Trump and his White House and the people involved in it had around the attempted coup. Finally, going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. 
This week, I am talking about two people, Adolf Eichmann and Angelo Sodano. Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi, uh, as you might have guessed from his name. He was born in the early 20th century and rose up the ranks of the Nazi party and also the SS after his entrance into it. Uh, he was ethnically Austrian. Uh, Eichmann was famous and important during the Second World War because he managed the logistics for the Holocaust. He was a logistics officer uh, for the SS. And what this means is specifically that Eichmann was literally the person who managed the transportation of Jewish people, of political prisoners, of Slavic people, of Roma, um, of people whom the Nazis disliked because of their sexuality, and also of people who were disabled, to first relocation camps and then finally extermination camps. Eichmann was also deeply involved with the logistics planning that transitioned the initial stages of Germany's attacks on the people whom, did, whom it deemed undesirable. This transition from their initial relocation plans and pogroms, so sort of like semi-organized extermination, to the more organized extermination of the death camps that would come to predominate in the later part of the war. Eichmann was not only present at the Wannsee Conference, which is where this transition was planned, where, where the transition to mass murder was planned. Uh, he also specifically actually took the notes at that meeting for his superior, uh, Reinhard Heydrich. Now, Eichmann managed to escape after his capture after World War II. He was captured by the United States, but escaped and lived in Germany for a while, but eventually received papers that would allow him to immigrate to South America, specifically Argentina, uh, where he lived semi-openly until 1960, uh, when he was identified and captured by the Israeli intelligence organization Mossad and also private Nazi hunters who had been looking for him for quite some time because of his serious, extreme involvement in the planning of the Holocaust. So he was captured by Mossad and so somewhat illegally extradited to Israel. The Argentine government was not alerted about this and they were not asked permission uh, for Mossad to do so. He was tried. It was a show trial, obviously. Um, he was tried for his um, human rights abuses. The verdict was essentially already in. Uh, this is one of the trials that is known as the trial of the century. It's also the trial where Hannah Arendt, the famous philosopher, coined the term the banality of evil to describe Eichmann's behavior and his attitude towards his crimes. He was hanged by the state of Israel this week in history, June the 1st, 1962. Second person I want to talk about is Angelo Sudano. He was a Catholic prelate born in Italy in 1927, and he rose the ranks of the priesthood uh, until he was eventually appointed at, as what is um, essentially the Vatican's diplomat, uh, specifically to Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship. During the dictatorship, he developed a personal friendship with Pinochet and did some okay stuff advocating for people to, you know, be allowed to leave or come back from Chile without being you know, murdered by the state. Uh, but he was friends enough with Pinochet to specifically ask the United Kingdom to not uh, hold him for trial when Pinochet was under house arrest in the United Kingdom after the fall of the Chilean dictatorship. Sudano's other major crimes include uh, covering up child abuse in the church uh, in his various positions, uh, including his position in the College of Cardinals. Sudano died not just this week in history, but this week, uh, the 27th of May, 
2022 of a complication of COVID and pneumonia in his 90s. So Adolf Eichmann and Angelo Sedano, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Kai Johnson. Thank you, Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music, for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell your friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. That's how people learn about it. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I am also on Twitter at hist of the right, H-I-S-T of the right, or fascism 15. And again, that's 15 spelled out all one word. All right. Thanks. And I will talk to you next week.